Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, where conversation with creative people is thriving. Voiceover artists, actors, musicians, directors, and those who champion the written word. Today's guest is best-selling award-winning author William Martin, whose works include Back Bay, Harvard Yard, The Lincoln Letter, Cape Cod, and many more. He's now out with his latest historical thriller, and it's terrific. It's called Bound for Gold, a Peter Fallon novel of the gold rush. Welcome, sir, to the podcast. Great to have you. Jordan, it's always great to be here. No Martin book is properly published until I sit down with Jordan Rich. We have had a lot of fun over the years, Mm -hmm. and I'm glad we're still able to get together and do it on this wonderful medium. The new one is called Bound for Gold. We'll talk about it specifically right at the start. And it involves the gold rush, the famous 49ers, and uh, and an interesting journal. Uh, so yep. before we get there, though, you've got returning characters that we yes, love. Yes. Well, the characters that first appeared in Back Bay so long ago, Peter Fallon and Evangeline Carrington, on-again, off-again lovers, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, never quite getting married. They're back here in their sixth adventure. Peter is a dealer in rare books and documents. And his pursuits have taken him through the history of Boston and Back Bay and uh, Harvard and Harvard Yard and so on and so forth. And in this book, his son comes to him and says, uh, he's, he's now a lawyer in San Francisco, the son is, Dad, uh, I need you to help me reconstruct a gold rush journal. There are seven pieces of this journal. The transcription has disappeared from the California Historical Society, and we can't liquidate an estate until we reconstruct the journal. And so Peter says, oh, here's an opportunity to help my son. And he gets on a plane with Evangeline, and they head out to California, where complications Mm. ensue. Well, what I love about it, and I haven't had a chance to read through it that much because I just got it, is the return to the old days and how vivid it is and yeah. how you have brought the gold rush days alive. Yep. And so the book is present day and gold rush day. Right, right. As Peter and his son find each each uh, notebook, each of those seven sections, the seven sections come to life for us. Because, you know, in all of these Peter Fallon books, we go back and forth in time. Peter's, Peter's search for a lost artifact is only um, half of the story. And the rest of the story is uh, about the artifact itself or about the people Mm. in the past. And it's my, Peter is kind of my, uh, and through me, the reader's guide into history. And Peter is is pointing out the events and saying, look at this. You you, you thought that that this decision to... uh, travel to California by these characters in 1849 didn't really affect what's going on today? Well, you're wrong. History is always affecting the way that uh, sure. the way that we live today in one way or another. Well, what, the, the journal, if I'm not mistaken, is penned by a Boston guy. Am yes. I right about that? Yes. So there were Bostonians who were part of this. Right. Well, the, sto- the story, and probably predominantly New Englanders, January of 1848, gold is, is discovered in the tail race of Sutter's Mill, Sutter's Mill right. up in the foothills, up on the American River. Now, the man who found it, he found one little piece of gold. Uh, he immediately went down to Mr. Sutter, who had his fort down below in the flatlands near Sac- what is today Sacramento. And he said, uh, uh, I think this is gold. And, and uh, 
Sutter said to him, we got to keep this quiet. Not because they they wanted all the gold. They had no idea of how much gold there really was up there. The gold that would eventually be discovered ran in a band 250 miles north to south uh, along the Sierra foothills and in a distance of about 50 miles, a massive area mm. of, uh, of gold-laden possibility. And what Sutter was concerned about, Sutter holding 55,000 acres of land right in the middle of the state, trying to become an uh, agricultural baron, he was afraid that people would just roll over his ground and pick everything clean, which ultimately is what happened. So they couldn't keep it quiet for long. Word started to leak out. And uh, in May, there was a guy by the name of Sam Brannan, very smart guy, who uh, was a merchant who got wind of all of this stuff, and he went out and started buying up all the picks and shovels. Oh, oh. smart guy. <laughs> then, right. Then he went to San Francisco and walked in. San Francisco was just a dusty little crossroads at this point yeah. with, with, a, with a harbor that was pretty shallow. And he waves a jar of gold dust around <clears throat> and shouts, gold, gold, gold from the American River. And everybody had a headed for the gold rush. So that was the that's, viral viral advertising of the day. Right. That's the beginning of it. But don't forget, in those days, it took six months to get from one side of the continent to the other. Mm. Uh, and it took, ultimately, it took until December before the people of the East really believed what was happening there. And that was when the president of the United States, after having seen a tea caddy loaded with gold, you know, like a box of tea, uh, wrote in his report to Congress that, yes, reports of, reports of gold in California seem completely accurate. And at that point, the world went crazy, including a lot of Bostonians. Bound for Gold is the book we're talking about. William Martin is here, a great friend and someone who's bringing us history and thriller at the same time. One of the aspects that the book deals with is what was happening to the indigenous population and the minorities, right. uh, including the Chinese mm -hmm. during this period. And, and it's easy to say, well, not treatment that we would uh, adhere to today, but it was much worse than that, yeah. the way some of these people were treated, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the first step was for all the white miners to get out to California, um, starting with those New Englanders. They formed companies. There were 144 companies that organized themselves in Boston in those first few months. And they would sail around and they would get up to the gold rush and... Uh, and then the people came across on the wagon trains, and they traveled by steamer and walked across Panama. And after they'd gotten there, six or eight months' journey, and they went into the gold fields, and they looked around, and they saw that there were Mexicans there who had gotten there ahead of them, and there were Chileans who had gotten there ahead of them, and some Chinese, too. They began to get a little... Uh, uh, well, they fell back on the common prejudices of the time. And one of the things that I try to show you in the novel is that while, and, and it's something I've tried to show throughout my career, 
the American experiment, the American experience is a grand and noble thing. And yet every so often we need to shine a light into the darker corners in order to uh, um, fulfill the uh, uh, what one Supreme Court justice said, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yes, exactly. And they organized governments right away, small governments in the mining districts like New England town meetings and a, and a state government. Uh, government that would petition for statehood. Is it safe to say that but, the gold rush period was really the the impetus to create the state? I mean, it got the state yeah, on its feet, yes. so to speak? Right. Well, Calif- don't forget, California had only uh, a year earlier become part of the United States. The treaty that settled the Mexican-American War, which gave America, the United States, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and all of California a vast and enormously Good wealthy. deal for the U.S. at that yes. point. Yes. Uh, that, um, that, that treaty had only been signed a year earlier. And now here came uh, all of these white miners who look around and they say, we need statehood right away. And they petitioned uh, in late 1849, early 1850, and by October, they got the word that California had been admitted to the uh, Mm. Union. Of course, as a free state, which meant that you would have the Compromise of 1850, and one of the big fuses that would lead to the Civil War had been lit. But that legislature, the first law that they promulgated was called the Anti-Foreign Miners Tax. And they said, in order to satisfy all those white miners, we're going to charge foreigners, Mexicans, Chileans, Chinese, 20 bucks a month to work in the diggings. And uh, when you look at that, and 20 bucks a month back then was like 500 today, mm. uh, you realize that they were already involved in a, in, um, in a kind of uh, process that that certainly is worthy of writing about in a novel. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gold rush fever, we hear that. And of mm-hmm. course, what's cool about the novel is it's it's happening in the present day. People are looking for this journal and the hunt is on for the, quote, lost river of gold. But right. how intense was this fever, do you think? I mean, it seems to be amazingly intense. Oh, yeah. Well, think of think of what people were prepared to do, like this company that I write about in the book and the guy who writes the journal. Uh, they were ready to leave comfortable homes, businesses, uh, the lives they led in New England, go on a ship, put up a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks a piece uh, in order to buy tools, food, provisions. Uh, go on a ship, spend six to eight months of pretty, pretty uh, spine-pounding misery when you're on a ship that's going going around the horn. It's pretty awful. Or walk across the continent, which a lot of people did who got on the wagon trains and endure all the dangers and all the diseases and things like that to get there because, by God, you have a chance uh, with luck and hard work to make something of yourself that you never mm. could have made of yourself back east right. in the world of social structures and expectations and so forth. And that was what drove people to California. It wasn't, I don't think, greed. And people talk about gold fever as being greed. I think it was the fever uh, 
for a second chance. A dream. Yeah. An absolute dream. Right. Winning the lottery in a sense, but picking it up yourself. Of course, Mm -hmm. we all know who they're going to buy their picks and shovels from when they got there, as you point out. Well, but when you talk about that, though, what what ultimately would happen for most of these gold rushers was that um, I think about 10% of them would make enough money that they could say, yes, I've, I've succeeded. And a lot more of them would go home disappointed. I read a lot of the journals when I was writing the book in order to capture the voice of this character who writes the journal that is the, the heart of the book. And you would hear these guys talking about how sorry they were that they had left home after all, how much they wished they had stayed in Plymouth, Massachusetts or Salem Mm. or wherever else they had come from. So they didn't do very well. Some of them would come home with their tail between their legs. Some of them would stay in California and become laborers and if they were smart, buy a little bit of land. But the real smart ones were the people like Sam Brannan uh, or the others who figured out that the way to make money was to mine the miners. That was the term they used. And the most famous of those people, of course, though he comes a little bit later, was uh, was Mr. Levi. Ah, uh, of Levi the, Strauss. Of the jeans fame. Exactly. Right. And, and that's where they come from. Right, right. And the mighty fortunes, though, were built by the merchants and the people who uh, who could anticipate the wants and needs of those people before. For those who know you yeah. and know your biography, yeah. uh, they know that you have a love for film and you originally uh, pursued a career as a screenwriter. And yep. you were telling me that this particular story yeah. was born uh, for the screen many years ago. Tell us that story. Well, I went to the USC Film School in 1974 to become a famous movie director. And I got to California and met a lot of other people who had come to California for the same reason, to the USC Film School, to become famous movie directors. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in that, we were in the class like two years after George Lucas and and John Milius and all of those people who were already at the top of the world. And so uh, when it came time for us to take our screenwriting course, I looked around at all of my friends and I said, um, well, first of all, I don't want to write just a a basic modern script. I want to do what I love to do. I want to write the kind of movie that I'd love to see. A big story about the gold rush. And uh, and I said, well, what what will the heart of it be? Well, the heart of it is going to be uh, my understanding of all of us. We are all like those people of 130 years ago. We have come chasing that dream that we've been talking about, that that opportunity to make something of ourselves that we could never have made of ourselves if we'd stayed back east. And once once I had that idea, uh, I dove into the screenplay. I created the historical characters that uh, that you meet in the novel, the young guy who writes the uh, journal, who is a young, well-off Bostonian. And his Irish friend. Right. He's there too. And his Irish friend. They're both in it. But the young Bostonian is going to California uh, to write about the experience and to see the elephant. That was a phrase that was popular at the time. I'm going to see the elephant, the big display in the carnival, that that big thing mm. that I would never see unless I went off on this adventure. Because he's that character is pretty well off, whereas the Irish guy is much more driven by that that 
big that big chance. Mm. This is my this is my moment to make something of myself, and so all of that was layered into the screenplay. So were the the struggles over the foreign miners' tax because those characters befriend the Chinese in their uh, in the gold fields, and uh, it won the Hal Wallace Screenwriting Fellowship. Now Hal Wallace uh, was a legend. He had produced Casablanca. Uh, True Grit, Ben Hur, I believe. No, no, he didn't do that. Oh, I thought that was no, nope, Wallace. No, nope, okay. that was uh, that was William Wyler. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, all so, the Elvis movies of the. Oh, 50s. that's right, the Elvis, the Elvis yep, stuff. Yep. Right. All the John Wayne movies of the uh, of the early '60s, and um, I got to meet him. I got my name on the cover of Variety, and for the first time in my life. Uh, Somebody other than my wife actually called me a writer on the basis of that screenplay. But he didn't want to produce it. Uh, so I moved on to other things. I started the Peter Fallon stories at that point. And, um, and yet, for all those years, I always felt that there was something there in that Gold Rush story. And I had friends that had read it way back when who'd said, you need to go back to that story. And I also knew that it it needed a, another act when the characters ride off into the sunset at the end of uh, uh, the end of that screenplay. There's one more big movement of story yet to be told. And that's what I grafted onto it here in, in bound for gold. So you get, mm -hmm. you get a big story of the building of a civilization here uh, and, and of how hard it is to, to build a civilization out of nothing particularly when the motivation is to find money and get rich, which is somewhat different from the motivation of the pilgrims who first landed on these shores here in uh, right, New England, right. whose idea was that they were creating a city on a hill. Right, right. No. It, it, when you look back at where you were in 74 and the aspirations you had, and then you realize you've been one of the most successful novelists, certainly who lives in this area that we know of. Isn't it interesting how life takes turns? Yes. And yet there, there's a close relationship to what you were thinking about doing yeah. in screenplays. Yeah. They just, they're, they're screenplays with the imagination. That's true. That is how I look at all of the stories that I write. There's a movie playing in my head, uh, and the film is, the film is rolling, and, and if I make this movie... Uh, effective enough in my own head, it'll be it'll play in your head too. You know, I I uh, wrote a novel called The Lincoln Letter, which we talked about. We a few did years indeed. Ago. I loved it. And uh, I always describe the the process of writing it, working late at night. I didn't want to work late at night. Don't like working late at night anymore. I used to be happy to do it when I was in my thirties, but you know. I'm a little bit older now, and staying up until midnight isn't my favorite thing, uh, at least when I'm writing. And nevertheless, I was trying to meet a particular deadline. And so I wrote the scene where the main character finally pulls up in front of Ford's theater. This is the big climax of the book. And, and I described the facade of Ford's theater, and uh, I said to myself, I've made it. Now I can go to bed. Yeah. And just then... The door of the Star Saloon opened, and the young athletic actor walks up 
the street and stops and turns at me and says, you don't want to go to bed yet, Bill. Come on inside and see what's going to happen now. And I can still remember it was almost like camera of my imagination just tracked right through the door of the Ford's Theater, right behind John Wilkes Booth. Booth stops. He takes his ticket. He has his banter with the uh, the ticket uh, the ticket guy. Then he walks in and he goes up the stairs up to the uh, dress circle, and my camera follows him up. So you know, there's always a movie playing in my head, and hence the ability for the reader to uh, to be in that movie, which yeah. is really fun. We're talking about Bound for Gold, William Martin's latest novel, uh, a Peter Fallon novel of the California Gold Rush. And before I leave the movie topic for a second, if people uh, read your bio, they may be surprised by one element. You know what I'm going to talk about That's here. right. That's right. Humanoids from the Deep. Uh, yes. Which is the actual movie made uh, based on, was it your original screenplay? When you start out as a writer in Hollywood, uh, you try to make as many connections as you can. And uh, I had made a good connection at uh, New World Pictures which was the company owned by the famous Roger, Roger Corman. Corman. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I always call it Roger Corman's College of B-Movie Knowledge. Yes. And he had an assistant, the woman by the name of Frances Dole, who promised me that someday they were going to give me the opportunity to write something. And just as I was finishing Back Bay, she called me up and said, we have an assignment. I said, really? She said, yep, yep, it'll be Writer's Guild minimum. So that means I would get $12,500 to write it, which was not great money, but pretty decent in 1978. And I would get get the money and I would get a screen credit because some people had come to Roger uh, with an idea that sounded suspiciously like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right, right, right. Except they had also brought him money. (laughs) Roger was always very fine with that idea. He sure was, exactly. And as as long as he had production money, he could turn any idea into something of his own. This guy had Roger Corman had given a start to Martin Scorsese, Jack Nicholas, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, or Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, not Nick. Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Well, maybe him too. I played golf yesterday, so. (laughs) Um, So anyway, who was I to turn down the opportunity to write Humanoids from the Deep? And I recently came across a little fact. I'm not sure how accurate it is. I need to uh, firm this one up but that it was the second most financially successful movie of the summer of 1980 after The Empire Strikes Back. Well, if that's the case, (laughs) you have uh, an extra star in your IMDb call. Yeah, That's that's impressive. No, I I love that Well, I only got (laughs) 12,500. Right, right. But if you work for Roger, you were lucky to get that, I'm told, for for all that. Well, getting back to the book, it's it's, uh, really terrific. And just a question about your style these days and your output. You've got Bound for Gold, which is now everywhere. It's a great summer read, and people will be reading it well into the fall. Mm-hmm. But I know you're working on the next one. Do you yes. have a particular timetable that you have to fulfill for the next one? Well, I have a timetable that I should fulfill, mm-hmm. which is to publish a book every two years, and uh, a timetable that I do fulfill that is some somewhat more uh, unpredictable, yes. let us say. Uh, the Bound for Gold took a long time because I... I headed down a different road with a different project, and I didn't really think it was going anywhere. So I turned away from that, and um, 
And then uh, my mother was uh, was dying, and I mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, you know, the world will not stop spinning if if I publish a book a year or six months later, uh, as long as I could say that I spent that time and helped my mother and done done what I'm supposed to do as a human being, and uh, and that was really uh, the. That's one of the other reasons that Bound for Gold came uh, came along after five years, rather than the uh, the requisite two to three that you've always come to expect from me. And Peter and Evangeline continue in this series, and their relationship has evolved. It's had its ups and downs, as you mentioned. Yes, it has. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> at at one point, I thought about having Peter and Evangeline get married. And I was setting it up at the end of one book and preparing to do it in, in, at the beginning of another. And my editor said, you know, th- these couples in fiction can sometimes be more interesting if they're not married than if they are. And I said, yeah, I know a few couples like that, too. And so uh, I have always kept them since then separated. She likes New York. He likes Boston. And uh, they get together. A little on the, tension is good for the soul. I know. It, I makes, know. it makes it more interesting. Yeah. Right? And and the the new novel that I'm writing is not a Peter Fallon Evangeline novel. Uh, so I'm, I'm ruminating on <clears throat> what I will do once I get back to those two as to whether I finally let them get married or not. You know, they've aged a lot more slowly, I hate to say it, than I have. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the beauty of uh, yeah. controlling their lives in a sense, or having right. them part of your life. You, you can make them uh, somewhat ageless. And- right, right. Well, Robert Parker started writing uh, about Spencer, the, the famous Boston detective, uh, when they were both, I think, in their late 30s. And Parker wrote him for 40 years, and he never got old. No, he didn't. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. he stayed the same, and uh, he's still going strong. Right. Ace Atkins, my... My pal, who I've met and interviewed a couple of times. Oh, that's right. But yeah, uh, yeah. Can, I can only say congratulations. Your books are amazing because there's so much detail, so much historical research, and uh, so much care taken to get the story right. Yes. Well, it, it and it's the care to get the research right, to plunge you into a world that you might think you know, but you really don't. And that's what I try to do when I take you onto the ground in the gold rush and you feel the heat and you see the people dying of disease and you experience some of the darker aspects of this event that is a hugely significant one in American history. Between the Constitutional Convention and the Civil War, there is nothing Hmm. of greater import than the California gold rush upon our sense of who we are as Americans and upon our uh, our sense in the 19th century of where we can go with this ever burgeoning nation that we have. Well, it is a, a must read for my fans and my followers because people who know me know I love stuff like this. And your books from back bay on have been uh, a, a real, real treat to enjoy. Thank so you. thank you very much and uh, have fun with the next one. Oh, thank you, Jordan. And I we'll, will. Have you, we'll have you back. I'll, the be, next back. I'll be back. I'll be back. I promise it'll be sooner. Okay. William Martin, Bound for Gold, a very special guest here on the podcast. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.